Hiya, Graham Norton here. Thank you very much for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. This weekend, Kate Morton joins me to talk about her new book, Homecoming. Sally Phillips is on stage for a limited time only in bleak expectations. So Chef Martha tells us what to do with purple sprouting broccoli and gets the espresso butter out. And there's a couple of rounds of word up. But before all of that, Maria and I have some dilemmas to deliberate in Graham's Guide. Here's Maria to kick us off. Hello, Graham Norton. Do you know what, Graham Norton? Since you last spoke to me, I have become Charlie Dimmock. Alan Titchmarsh and Charlie Dimmock rolled into one, although I do wear a bra. I have been gardening, gardening, gardening. And you've posted pictures, which everyone loves to see. (laughs) (laughs) I have posted a picture on the Instagram. No, I I just have to say, I have um, some neighbours who have sold their house and are moving, and they have a beautiful Edwardian garden. And the new people that are coming into their house have bought it are planning to pave over the garden. I think some sort of architectural display. So they've been getting rid of benches and rose arbors and planks of wood and pots. And so I have been stupidly with my back brace carrying things back and forth to my garden. Basically, I'm recreating their garden in my garden and it's coming along beautifully. I mean, they must be loving it because you've saved them the expense of hiring a skip. Hire a skip or just contact our neighbour Maria. There you go. You have it. I mean, they also have a skip, I have to say, in their garden with lots of things in. And when I go past With you in it. I normally take something out of it as well. Is it rats? We all no, love a free Maria's thing. In the skip. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you Some... very much to Damien and Jane. <laughs> they must be loving it. Uh, and uh, I, now you had a very odd display. I felt in your garden. You had a display of empty vases on a table. <laughs> why, why were they? Why were they in the garden? The, the vases. What was in the garden? Sorry. Empty vases. You had you had three empty vases on a table in yes. your garden. Yes, this is a small... I, those were also found. There's a church up nearby and lots of things were put out to say, please take. Um, so there was sort of lots of religious iconography and some vases in, in sort of very battered brass, which I spray painted in lovely colours to make a little art display. That's what that is, Graham. And they did have daffodils in them, but they daffodils died. Oh, Jesus did that. that no, yeah, he didn't yeah. at all. Um, I will, um, let me just point out, I did take, it did say, please take these things. I wasn't stealing from a church. Just in case people think I am a bad person. Why would anyone no. do that? That's yeah. like expecting no. the, the lightning bolt from heaven, isn't it? So, yes, that was my garden display. And I've also painted some palettes, which is a little bit of a sort of moot point. Uh, whether or not they will stay. I painted some palettes blue to make a seat. Bad idea. Okay. Well, no, bad idea. I feel like I feel like what you've done there is you've watched one of those videos that play on Facebook without <laughs> asking, um, and you thought, oh, it's possible to make a park bench out of pallets, but it's also possible to just to buy a park bench, uh, which yes. would look a lot nicer. Uh, but still, well, well I, done you. Well done. No, you. but then I painted the pallets blue, and I found some cushions in a charity shop, uh, you know, like lengthways cushions, like you'd have on a sun lounger, and I dyed those purple. So. This this is also going to be part of the colour scheme of crazy. Basically, what I've done is I've created a children's playground. <laughs> yes. I, and I feel like you, the neighbours must be all looking at you going, I hope she gets a job soon. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> 
please, it please is a job. Busier. Gardening is backbreaking, very hard work, and very gratifying. I've just, I've come late to it, Graham. I have come late to it, but now I'm, I go out and look at my little seedlings, sunflower seedlings. How are you doing today? <laughs> mad, 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 yeah. mad. And your blue palettes with, a, and with an old palettes, sun yeah. lounger. <laughs> they may not last. If anybody goes past my house and sees some blue palettes outside, please help yourself. Yeah, Free cycle, all of that. Yeah. People who Even might need a blue outside, palette. The neighbours would like like people to help themselves. Just come round and go back. It's fine. Just take them. Very quickly, uh, quick, very quickly, are you having a flutter on the Grand National this afternoon? I am going to back Rachel Blackmore. Ain't that a shame? Because uh, it's marvellous that we've got women in the Grand National now and she is doing very well. And I think I'm going to put £10 on Rachel Blackmore. You? No. You can't, you can't even <laughs> think of a name. You can't even think no. of a name. No, but also she's the favourite, so there's no point. You you have to go you have to go long, don't you? You have to go long. Yes, I know you have to yeah. go long, but it's good that a woman is the favourite. I just no, think no, that, that is needs great. To be that is great, and good good luck to her. Virgin Radio. And letter number one, please. Here we go, dear Graham and Maria. I don't know whether or not to give my nephew a birthday present. I didn't get a thank you from him for his birthday present last year or for his Christmas presents. I actually resent spending my hard-earned cash on him when he doesn't seem to care or appreciate the thought and effort that I've gone to. Money aside, his parents are well off and he gets quite spoiled and indulged. I'm not even sure he'll notice if I don't send him anything. Am I being stingy? For the sake of maintaining good family relations with my brother and sister-in-law, do I just try to put my annoyance to one side and send a gift? Please help because I feel very conflicted. And that is from Violet in Northumberland. I understand Violet in Northumberland, but I do have to say children nowadays don't tend to send thank you cards or thank you letters I mean I remember being sat down and having to do endless thank yous and I never knew who sent what or I was always very appreciative but it just seemed like a chore and I wondered whether it was worth the effort frankly but um, I think you can maintain good relations with your sister-in-law and brother by sending a card and now I'm going to suggest because somebody children who have a lot sometimes need to look outside the box and realize that there are a lot of people that don't have anything at all and there are lots of really good charities I did this once for my nieces where you can buy a donkey for example or maybe not a donkey a goat which is useful um, for a child in uh, you know a, a, another country a third world country where they don't have very much at all and it will make a huge difference or you can sponsor a child to help with schooling etc and you will get lots of charities like this I won't mention any but uh, you can, you get photographs of the child that you sponsor, you hear the name, you can correspond with that child. And so it's good for your nephew, who has, you know, clearly tons of stuff and is spoiled and indulged, to just know that not everyone lives in the world that he lives him in. And, and I think it's a, a nice thing for him to know you're spending some money but on something that isn't just, you know, a, another toy or a gaming system or whatever. Uh, and he will start to understand and maybe then engage with a different world. That would be my solution. Graham? Well, I think that's a solution, but not to this problem. Because I think that will oh. stop him being a rude little brat. You know, that will help him. That will yeah, but open you him can't up stop him being a rude little brat. That, 
That's his mum and dad's sort of choice, isn't it, to have a rude well, little and brat? That's, we, that's she hasn't what actually I think said that... he's a rude little brat. Well, he doesn't send thank you notes, so he is well, a rude little brat. Well, people don't yeah. anymore. Well, they should. They should. Or at least they should acknowledge. They should acknowledge the gift in some way, even if it's a text or an email or it's a, you know something. A voice note. Hey, I'm down with the kids. Uh, Violet and Northumberland. I think your problem is that it, it, this is one of those weird things where I I'm so with you that yes, you should get a thank you of some sort. It doesn't have to be a, a thank you card or an, an actual handwritten note, I guess, because that is a, a different world. But. The trouble is, if you say anything about this, it's uh, you are slightly going into the the territory of you're bringing your child up wrong, or uh-huh. you know that you know what I mean. So it it will never end well. So yes, you're conflicted, but I don't know how you can make it. I, mean, I suppose you could do that kind of passive aggressive thing, kind of oh, just checking that you know little brat got that gift. Because I never heard anything. Did he? Did he get yeah. it? And uh, yeah. so you could do that. But then you're then you seem like a bit of a you know n- nobody thinks much of Violet because she's so um, passive aggressive and, and weird when she gets in touch. I don't. Or you just but stop think, sending presents. Just stop sending. I presents. think Graham, if it, it's a way of saying you've got a lot of things, here's a child that doesn't have a lot of things. I'm still spending money, and this is your gift card, and you get a little photograph. This is you know. Sven, you know, I get all name. that, but you're still not getting yeah. a thank you card. The the person, the person that you've you've sponsored has got you know a goat or an access to uh, education, or they've got you know something. So that is a good thing to do with your money. But I'm saying it doesn't help Violet teach this kid that they should say thank you if you give them something. Now it doesn't matter how they say thank you, but they need to say thank you because they'll but end that up. That is really you know, on the parents. That is on the parents. Have you sent a text to Auntie Violet to say thank you for the goat for a child in you know Eritrea? Don't laugh. Be, Do not laugh. No, I'm just thinking somebody just tuning in, kind of going, "Why is she telling people to send a goat?" <laughs> You don't get the goat. You don't get the goat. It gets got for you. You get you get more than a thank you note. You get more than a thank you note if you sent a goat round. <laughs> a distraught guy. Oh, you got this gift, did you? Oh, right. Fine. Normally, I don't hear anything, but when oh, the goat gets a reaction, okay, great. Yeah, also, it's a different present. You know, it's a different form of thing. Just another thing to open. Oh, there's another toy. There's another thing. It's a different way of thinking, and that's what you're trying to encourage without being passive aggressive. It's a little passive aggressive, but without being aggressive aggressive by saying, "I never get a thank you. I never get a." This is about someone else. You're doing a good thing, which might make him think oh there are other people that that's a nice gift from auntie violet he won't obviously no he won't he'll be livid absolutely livid and then you can explain (laughs) well since you never say thank you i thought i'd send something to somebody who would be grateful uh you know you he'll send her a text saying where's my goat you promised me a goat (laughs) yeah the lady on the radio said she would be sending me a goat and my favorite sponsor today will be receiving waitrose chocolate cupcakes oh it's a beautifully presented box of four chocolate cupcakes with chocolate buttercream and white chocolate decorations Mm, delicious uh claire in norfolk my great aunt used to send me money for my birthday christmas presents and included a stamp in my card for the return thank you it used to frustrate me as i always sent a thank you as if i didn't i would be told to send the present back maybe however it's a solution for the problem i mean i think a child might stare at a stamp if you sent them to (laughs) what that what that 
Is that the gift? Uh, it's a, it was a good idea in the past, uh, Claire of Norfolk. Vicky is in Kenilworth. Violet should send a message after to ask whether her nephew liked the gift rather than whether they got it. Less passive-aggressive, is it? Say something like it's getting a bit harder to choose gifts as they get older, as this is a genuine thing that every parent will relate to. And, I mean, that's just true. It is. You know, when they're toddlers, it's easy to buy gifts, and then it gets harder and harder. Uh, Susan Redding, uh, Violet should buy the nephew a book token and put a note on the token to say, let me know what book you buy. That way they should acknowledge and respond. I like that idea because that is, you know, you're feigning interest in the child's life and, you know, you're sort of forcing them to get back in touch. It's hard you know, they know they're being rude if they ignore that request. That's a good idea. Morning, Greg Maria. Another auntie here who doesn't get a thank you. Depending on Violet's nephew's age, I think it's down to the parents to make sure that they that the nephew say thank you. I'd buy vouchers for them to do things together, such as cinema trips or day out. Violet sees her nephew. Could she do something with him for his birthday instead of sending a present? Don't not send a present, Violet. All right, Lauren. Uh, I suggest the auntie sends her nephew a birthday card and a nicely wrapped pack of thank you cards as as a present he might get the hint oh sally and droitwich that, that now that's passive aggressive this year i got you a pack of thank you cards as a present uh, i tell you what i'm going to give the uh chocolate cupcakes to sue in reading for her book token idea that is a good one Graham's guide. problem yeah, number yeah. two two dear gracious <laughs> two dear graham and maria in my 20s, I went to university in London. I'm 53 now. I'm from the north and found the transition very difficult indeed. I'd also experienced the death of a friend before I left for London, and so my mental health was not brilliant. Long story short, I ended up failing the course and I felt very alone. I had one friend who stuck by me and scraped me off the floor many a time. I eventually moved back up north and lost touch with this friend, but in the last year we were reunited through Facebook. The thing is, they've started to ask me to lend them money as they're going through hard times and are not able to work due to health problems. My dilemma is it's been going on for a year now. I don't expect the money back and I was happy to help, remembering what a saviour they'd been to me, but it's starting to seem ridiculous. It's usually £5 here and £25 there every other week. How long should I keep giving as I can't help noticing the loss and it's starting to irritate me? I'd really value your thoughts on this matter. And that is from Joanne in East Yorkshire. Oh, Joanne in East Yorkshire, I think you've repaid the debt. I mean, that guilt, obviously, and somebody helped you. But it was 30 years ago and he or she helped with your mental health then, but now are causing problems with your mental health 30 years later. So, you know, I don't think you can keep doing this. But you started in a sort of casual way and a year later you're still doing this. What I want you to do, Joanne, in East Yorkshire is to tot up the amount of money you have sent because £5 here, £25 there doesn't seem that much. But when you look back over the year, you might see that it's £500. I'm sure you don't have the money to keep doing this and you're not a bank and it's become a habit for this person. Oh, I'll just get 25 quid. That will help me to, you know, buy some fags and go to the pub. 
it's not how it works. I, you know, it's sad that your friend has not been able to work due to health problems, but there are systems in place to help that. I know it's not huge amounts of money, but won't be destitute. You have to make a stand here, Joanne. This is not a friend of yours. You lost touch for 30 years up until last year. It sounds like you haven't met or since you were in London and you've just been sending money to this person. You are now sort of, you know, an easy tap, if you see what I mean. You are the go-to for, oh, I need an extra couple of quid this week. You have to just be strong. And, you know, put it down in a letter to say, you were so kind to me and so on, but I can't keep doing this. I just don't have the money. I have my own things that I need to be looking after, including my mental health. And I'm really sorry, but I hope it's helped you in the last year. I won't be sending any more, Graham. I think you're right. You need to just cut this off, Joanne. And it's 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 up to you how you do it. In a way, you can just say, "Look, I've got some, I've got some, some unexpected bills have come in. I'm not going to be able to help you for the next couple of months, uh, because and and see what happens. See if the friend comes back to you in a couple of months and asks again. Because I think you know this friend was surviving before you got back in touch on Facebook, and so suddenly you've come along, and I imagine." This person on Facebook is just going through Facebook trying to find old friends that they can tap up for this. Because it's not huge amounts of money, but, it, it, you know, everyone will have run out of patience at some point. And that's you now. Um, So I think, yes, you're, you're totally within your rights to say no at this point. Because like I say, this person was surviving before you came back into their life and they will again. Um, And, you know, you can be as honest and upfront as you want to be, but is there any point in being confrontational? Is there any point in any of that? I think you just say, look, I can't afford this uh, this time. I, You know, I, I really appreciate what you did for me all those years ago. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, yeah, as you say, Maria, you know, not a bank, not the bank of East York, Yorkshire. So you just have to say no. And it may be eggy and awful, but it's interesting that you guys had not stayed in touch. That, you know, this yeah. person had been so good to you back then, but that was back then. And now, you know, I often say this, that it comes to a point where all you have in common is that you used to be friends. And that's it. And now this person has, you know, one of you sought the other out. I don't know which way around it was, but I suspect maybe this person is just going through Facebook and trying to find people uh, to ask for these. I think, Joanne, also, if it's easier, if it's easier, Joanne, to, you know, a white lie, to invent... An, a big yeah. expense so that you've got a get out clause. This is what I have. I have to find this much money for blah, 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 blah. You know, it's that might be it's a white lie, of course, and one shouldn't. But that might be a way around it. I just can't afford it because I've got a five thousand pound bill for. So I'm really sorry. And I hope what I've sent you this over the past year has helped. But I can't do it anymore. Then it's not confrontational. It's just this has to stop. Uh, and yeah. you don't feel so bad about it. Don't feel guilty, Joanne. You've done your bit. You've paid your debt from 30 years ago. Not that there should be a debt for someone helping you, but there you are. Now, sometimes that's how it works. Yeah, but and also I think there is a kind of an emotional thing, isn't there? There's a kind of a, you know, what's lovely in a way is that Joanne has 
paid out this money for a year. You know, what a nice, you know, that she did remember. And it's not like she's forgotten how much she appreciated that help 30 years ago. She absolutely remembers how much she appreciated that help all that time ago. But things have changed and this relationship isn't healthy. This isn't good Mm. that you are Mm. just this person who can cough up bits of cash every now and again. And again, my favourite responder will be getting the four chocolate cupcakes with chocolate buttercream and white chocolate decorations courtesy of a waitrose. Well, uh, now I should imagine Virgin listeners, no nonsense. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're uh, yeah, they're, they're with you, Joanne. Uh, Catherine Norfolk, how do you know this person can't work due to health issues? They may just be getting in touch with everyone they've ever known and asking for money. This is not how friendship works. Just tell them you can't afford to lend anymore. Uh, Jill's in London. Joanne, look back through Facebook conversation and ask if this is genuinely your friend or a hoaxer. Either way, you need to stop sending money. Chris and Basingstoke, tell Joanne to add up all the money she has sent to her friend and ask her to pay it back as she now has a large bill to pay. Then see if she honours it and if not, end the friendship. Well, no, Chris, I think she knows she's not getting the money back. But uh, yes, I see your I see your point. It's, it's a way out. Um... Now, a Karen from Amersham also says, perhaps this is a scam. Has she considered this might not actually be her friend at all? This could be someone who has hacked into their account and is just taking her money bit by bit. Because actually, it'd be quite easy to do that. If you hacked into somebody's Facebook thing, just send messages to people, all their friends, just going, hi, how are you? And then when you get a message back going, oh, I haven't talked to you for ages, da, 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 it wouldn't be that hard to kind of fake it would it uh, given they lost touch for a long time and then the relationship suddenly struck up out of the blue again on facebook it sounds very suspicious all right uh, have to say wonder where the money what the money is being spent on if they aren't well there is support available around uh, benefits they can claim there will be a welfare benefits advice line available helping them to achieve longer term financial sustainability will be more beneficial for them and your friendship once achieved, that should be your perceived debt to them and then paid in full with credit, I would think. Good luck. Thanks, Karen in Hereford. Uh, I am going to uh, give... Do you know what? I'm going to give the cupcakes to Jill in London. For, but it was the simplest bit of advice. Maybe stop, stop sending the money. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. All right, time for my guest this morning. Uh, for the last 15 years, one of the most successful novelists in the world. She has a new book out right now in hard book called Homecoming. Her name is Kate Morton. Uh, good morning, Kate. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. And where are you? Are you in Australia? <laughs> I was just thinking that as I said good morning and looked at the windows where it's it's pitch black outside. I am. I'm in South Australia and it has it's quarter to eight PM. So I'm oh, time okay. travelled so, ahead oh, of you. Okay, fine, fine, fine. And uh, you've paced yourself. You're not drunk or anything. That's all good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully not. Not yet, no. Yeah, you, yeah, you've held off on the wine. Oh, I've got to do that stupid radio thing. <laughs> uh, so Homecoming, I got the, you know, they sent me the, the PDF, you know, where you attach the book to the, the file. And, uh, and I don't really like reading PDFs. So I just thought, oh, I'll frisk it. Well, that was the end of my day. Uh, I just fell into this book, Kate. Congratulations. It's such a great yarn. Fantastic. Uh, tell us about it. Uh, wow. So uh, so it's got a two timelines. There's 2018 and there's 1959. Uh, what are you telling people about it? How do you entice people in? 
It's always the hardest question, isn't it? Um, my books, as you say, they're, they're long, they're deep, they're the sort of book that you immerse yourself in. I, I love it when readers fall into them and just want to keep turning page after page and the world of the book uh, conjures around them. There's always a mystery. Uh, there's always the, the, the past and the present tethered together. Uh, it's a story about um, the knots and tangles of family and secrets and, and the way they haunt their keepers. Uh, this one, as you say, set partly in 2018 and partly in 1959 in a small town in South Australia where a, a terrible, terrible um, crime, or so it seems, has has occurred. And the book is about uh, what really happened that day. And I'm interested in because it's very specific. I mean, it's re it's all set kind of uh, kind of around Christmas. And presumably, is 2018 so you didn't have to deal with COVID nonsense? Uh, it it was actually in, in part. I started the book. The book actually uh, the, the evolution story of the book was due to the pandemic. So I do have COVID to thank for um, sort of throwing me out of the manuscript that I had been working on, and because my family. Uh, uh, transplanted to Australia um, unexpectedly, and I was inspired to write this book instead. I, I have uh, the pandemic to thank for it. But yes, it, it is a tricky thing to manage when you're writing fiction. Not only that, the um, terrible Black Summer bushfires of Australia that preceded the pandemic, uh, that, that was another enormous um, event that would have been, would have taken over the fiction, I think, if I had tried to set it during the same period. And because, so you're in 2018, so did you work backwards, you know, kind of, well, if everyone's this age in 2018, I need things to have happened in 1959. Is that how that happened? It It, it can be. I was Attracted to the period because I feel that, you know, 1959, we, we most of us can uh, conjure up an image of, of what that period looked like. And yet it's it's not quite the modern period. And I really liked that sort of um, that proximate history. Uh, so I was quite keen that I wanted to set it then. But yes, working out what age everybody will be and whether I can still have characters, uh, you know, alive in the present day is it, always a, a bit of a trick. And, and 1950, I thought it was interesting, too, because particularly in rural Australia, it does seem mm. like the olden days. And then suddenly we're surprised that people are watching a television and the, <laughs> so, which we shouldn't be surprised <laughs> by. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, I, for all that this book was easier to write in a sense because I was setting it in my home country and the, the exact place that I was in. So I, you know, I knew what the wattle trees smelled like and I know what the eucalypts look like standing on the hill outside my window. It still took just as much research to, to, to figure out exactly what it would have been like in 1959 in this particular part of Australia. And it's tricky because there's a, a lot less um, research material out there. Is that because it just you know people weren't documenting things at that at that time in Australia? I I think I mean people were documenting things, but you you are more likely to have to go back to the primary sources because, for instance, if you want to write about London during the Second World War, there's a plethora of of secondary materials out there. You know, you, I mean, I have a bookshelf filled with books set about that period. Um, but if you want to write about a small village where nothing of particular historical note happened in, in rural Australia, there's a lot less material out there. 
And this awful crime that you talk about that happens in 1959, um, we won't say too much, but is it, 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 was it based on anything? It seems there's something so creepy and true crime-ish about it. Is is there any truth in it? I I made this one up and I wanted it to give uh, readers that uncanny sense. And as, as... As you would know, when we follow the character Percy in the prologue and come upon this scene, there's something very uncanny and and eerie about it. And I really did want to capture that feeling because I think it it very much suits the the Australian summer landscape. But there are a couple of true... uh, crimes uh, set in you know that, that occurred in South Australia that were in my mind uh, when I was writing for instance the very famous Summerton body case oh, yeah. in which yeah. about a decade before my um, action is set a, a man's body was found um, reclining at the top of the beach and to this day I think only now uh, with uh, modern technology are investigators starting to think they might have figured out who he was but I really wanted that sort of uh, how could this possibly have happened uh, crime to write about. And Kate, uh, was it, uh, I think 2006, I'm right, that was the house at Riverton, yes? That's right, yes. And so what, I it's mean, like a now, long time ago now. It, I mean, it is, it's 17 years ago or something. So now, <laughs> you know, we now know that the house at Riverton was a massive smash hit and it was this huge best selling book. Uh, Two things. One, what were you doing prior to that book coming out? And secondly, did was it a sleeper hit or did people kind of know, oh, this is hot stuff. This is going to do really, really well. Well, Graham, I'd actually written a couple of manuscripts beforehand. I was a student. I was working part time, sort of, you know, getting it together bit by bit. And I'd written a couple of manuscripts that nobody had wanted to publish. And then I had my first baby and I was at home and my life looked very different. And I thought... Well, I'm never going to be a published author, but I love writing. So I'm just going to write something for myself that I love with all the things I love in it. And I wrote a list and I couldn't have told you what sort of book it was going to be. It was a bit of this and a bit of that. And I started writing and I just, it felt different. And of course, that's the manuscript that became The House at Riverton. And so I I had zero expectations. And so for it to go out into the world and in fact, it actually sold to I was so lucky it sold to various countries before it had even been published in Australia um so it you know it was it was an incredible experience and to have what happened with my first novel in the UK it was on Richard and Judy which was you know such a big thing um at the time such an incredible thing to happen um it really it it's I can't even say it exceeded my wildest expectations because my expectations were nowhere near that level. And do you think it's harder as a as a, a writer working in Australia to get that global attention? Is, is it more difficult or is the world a small place and it doesn't really matter where you're publishing? I I think the world is getting smaller and certainly these days I mean it's I mean we you know we're talking now across technology that still makes my mind boggle and and so too with um you know it's the the transfer of a manuscript is not particularly difficult but it, it is uh, it's important to have and I've, I was very lucky to have people who were able to uh, take the manuscript and know who you know to whom they should show it so that is still important but you know there's there's not a barrier i think um based on geography 
And like in this book, Homecoming, there's a big chunk set in London and it's very kind of, you know, you really bring Hampstead to life and all, all of that. Is that your kind of eye on a British audience or is that just kind of, you know, you know that bit of London, <laughs> you know that bit of London and you, want, you, you wanted the homecoming idea? Yeah, I think in in this specific case, uh, because of the conditions from which this this idea arose, which was start of the pandemic, we were living in London, came back to Australia, thought it would be a brief trip and that it would all end and we'd go back to normal, but that didn't happen. And so uh, the the as I was writing, I was trying to, you know, I was thinking about home and belonging and what it means. And I was homesick for uh, the, the life that we had left in London. So it was a real pleasure for me to to write that into the story, along with the various other places that I have and do call home, like uh, Brisbane and like South Australia. And tell me this, I, I mean, is this it now? Are you kind of fully back in South Australia or will you still have your, your London life? Are you going to return to a London life? Um, I could never, uh, I mean, I adore London. It's it's my favourite city on earth. Um, so I can never be um, finished with life in London. But I'm also um, the, the mother of three children and they need to go to school. So I'm not quite as footloose and fancy free as I'd, I'd like to be. And there are certain um, practicalities that I have to observe when making these choices. Stupid school. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm so over it. <laughs> <laughs> and, but of course, what was you great? Now, again, one of the great things about the pandemic, presumably in the past, when, you know, a Kate Morton book came out, you had to, you know, pack a bag and traipse around the world selling it. And now that's less necessary. Now you can sit in South Australia. It, that's so true. It's such a, a curious thing because I'm used to um, touring with each book. So this is a very uh, new way to do it. And it's funny, I feel like a bit of a, a sham, actually, because everybody goes on about how you know annoying Zoom was during the pandemic. But because I was writing and it's so solitary, I don't. I think I did about one Zoom in the whole time. So I'm still learning the technology now. But um, certainly everybody seems to have adjusted to being able to do things in a different way. Well, you've mastered it marvellously this morning, or this evening, <laughs> as it is in Australia. Uh, Homecoming is Kate's new book. If you're a fan of Kate Morton, you will love it. If you haven't read Kate Morton before, uh, do yourself a favour. It is a treat. It's a big, deep dive, uh, twisty, turny yarn. It is fantastic. Uh, Kate Morton, thank you very much for joining us. Take care now. Bye-bye. Stay right there. Sally Phillips tells me about her onstage appearance in Bleak Expectations, and we have a round of Word Up. But first, hello, Mark. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Do you have a nice Easter break? Oh, I had a lovely Easter break, thank you. Lots of chocolate, lots of family time. It was all good. Well done, you. Is there a lot, do you have to do a lot of baking? Is there a lot of pressure on Martha Collison? <laughs> there Where's, is. They go, <laughs> they go, we heard you on the show last week making lamb, so we'd like that this week, please. <laughs> so I did. I provided. I provided the same lamb I made for you for my own family, Aww. but they were grateful. <laughs> Well done, you. Uh, right, uh, I've been I've been saying all day you've been doing something with purple sprouting broccoli. What have you done with purple sprouting broccoli? So I've taken the purple sprouting broccoli and I've made it into a purple sprouting broccoli and puff pastry sausage tart. <gasps> oh, now well you you kept that ingredient a secret. <laughs> uh, so yes, broccoli and sausage puff pastry tart. And tell me this. 
Purple sprouting broccoli, does it, I mean, it looks extraordinary. Does it taste different to regular broccoli? It's very similar in its flavour. It's it's got a slight nuttiness to it, supposedly. But I, I agree, a very slight nuttiness, but it's more about that striking colour. And I think it's higher in antioxidants. So, you know, that nutritional boost for <laughs> April... <laughs> <laughs> well done, you. Yeah, post post Easter egg. Uh, yeah, let's yeah. have some antioxidants. <laughs> Why not? Um, and this is one of those tarts. It's like a, a, like a tray bake tart. Is that right? Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, exactly. It's like an, an open tart, I think the Scandinavians would describe it as. But it's really good because it means it's really simple and it's a really versatile recipe as well. Once you've rolled out your sheet of puff pastry the world is your oyster and what you can put on top but we've gone for a lovely mixture of kind of creme fraiche fennel sausage pieces and purple sprouting broccoli it's quite unique but very delicious i hope and tell me that you did buy the puff pastry right <laughs> i did buy the puff pastry yes Phew. it's a okay. it's a half an hour recipe not a three and a half hour recipe you'd be pleased to yeah know. <laughs> no, and have you ever made have you ever made your own puff pastry or when you were in you know culinary school did they make you did they hit you with a stick and make you do it <laughs> I have made puff pastry, um, made it, I remember making it at school in food technology and then when I was on um, the Great British Bake Off many years ago, they, yeah, they insisted on <laughs> homemade from scratch puff pastry so I taught myself very quickly via YouTube but it does take a long time and the uh, stuff you can buy in Waitress is just as good if not better. I think a lot of chefs use shop-bought puff pastry because it's really hard to get those even layers and that delicious flakiness. Yeah, and also it's one of those things. It is magical, isn't it? Like it's just one of those things. You you just put it down, put it in the oven, and then it hap- It all happens. It's like a magic trick. It's extraordinary. Oh yeah, and you just can't go wrong. Everything everything made with puff pastry tastes great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. These these sound very like famous last words, <laughs> and nothing can go wrong. <laughs> Take it away, Martha. So, we're starting off with the purple sprouting broccoli itself. We're taking that and we are blanching it just for one minute. Because it's going to be baked in the oven, we want to make sure that we're not overcooking it. Because soggy broccoli is something that nobody likes. <laughs> so Nobody. Nobody likes that. Blanch it one minute in hot water, drain it away. And the most exciting thing about purple sprouting broccoli, in my opinion, is it turns the water bright blue. <laughs> Can I just say? Uh, the most exciting thing? <laughs> the most exciting <laughs> I, I, thing. Oh, let, let's have a countdown. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun. I don't know. I feel like there must be a use for that blue water, especially if you've got kids off on half term and you're looking for some, a fun activity. It was just exciting. I just loved it. It brought me a lot of joy this morning. <laughs> well, that's very good. Well done. Anyway, well it's blanched. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you're not getting the excitement as much as I am, which is, which is fine. It's fine. Um, <laughs> that was blanched and then it's cooled. And then we are making this white sauce as the base so it's almost like when you go for a pizza these days you can have pizza with the tomato passata and then you can have the white bechamel kind of based pizzas Mm -hmm. so this is a white based tart so we've got creme fraiche mixed with some chopped tarragon and some parmesan grated mix that all together and season it so that's kind of the what's going to go on the base of the tart so we're going to unroll a sheet of puff pastry and then spread it with that lovely creamy mixture Arrange over your broccoli, which is a bit cooled down now. Then we're taking two sausages, squeezing them out of their skins and mashing them up with a little bit of fennel. (laughs) And then dollop that over the top. You're really having a good time this morning, Martha. I know. I'm squeezing these out of their skins. You I've are. got some purple. I've got blue water. All the fun. 
so much process. Everyone is going to want to make this. Honestly, it's, it's just an exciting dish. <laughs> but so Ed you've Smith, when he wrote this recipe, out. You've, you've, mixed, you've mixed it with fennel. You've mixed it with fennel. Yes, sorry. I, I, I yes, I just distracted you. No, go no, on, go all, on. all good. And then it just gets little little nuggets of the sausage meat go all over the top of the tart, and then it goes into the oven for twenty five to thirty minutes till it's lovely and the cheese is all bubbly and golden, and the sausage is cooked, and then you just serve it up it's a good, really good lunch with a with a salad it's a ed smith recipe this one and it's in the waitrose magazine with lots of other ideas for that purple sprouting broccoli if you're if you're short of ideas <laughs> oh is this is this the time is this the good time for the purple sprouting it broccoli? is it's got a, a short season between i think Mar- march and april so literally very short two months and am i crazy or would this be quite nice cold i reckon it would be because pizza is lovely cold so i think this is one of those ones that yeah nice hot also really good cold and if you don't have purple sprouting broccoli you can use kind of regular tender stem would work well here as well okay yeah and in fact i mean once you've got this down you can chuck kind of anything on top of that puff pastry can't you yeah absolutely you could use vegetarian sausage you could use a bit of chorizo any of any vegetables that are kind of tender enough that they'll bake in and become soft within 25 30 minutes of cooking but yeah the world's your oyster with an open tart you can do whatever you like Excellent. Well, the full recipe, as you say, it's in the Waitrose Monthly magazine, but also can be found in the Graham North Waitrose Hub. Where's that? It's on the Waitrose website. Just go to waitrose.com slash showchef and you can see this recipe and indeed all the recipes prepared by Martha. And you can also check out the visuals of the recipe on our socials at Virgin Radio UK. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Are we got a sweet or savoury tomorrow, Martha? I've got something sweet uh, to make use of any leftover Easter eggs if you've got those knocking about. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Well, ding, ding, the trolley's in place. It's all parked up. Hello, happy Sunday to you, Martha. How are you? Hello, happy Sunday. I am well, thank you. And I have something that will wake you up this morning. (laughs) Yes, I must say, I don't know what it's doing with calories, but it's got... (laughs) It's got to do something. Uh, you, you've made it... A loaf sounds so simple, doesn't it? A loaf sounds so innocent. But uh, talk about this loaded loaf. What have you made? So this is the first half of the recipe title sounds like, oh, that's healthy. And then the second half, it goes a little downhill. So we're having banana loaf with fruit, nuts, chocolate and espresso butter. <laughs> wow. I mean, that will get you moving. Uh... It, it sure will. <laughs> You said it may be too sweet, but actually the recipe is quite good. It's an Ellie Pear recipe. She takes leftover ingredients and works her magic with them, turns them into lovely things. And the actual cake has slightly less sugar in than a usual banana bread to compensate for all of that chocolate that you're throwing in there, which is it's probably a good thing for 11am in the morning. Because uh, Ellie Pear, has she come up with uh, <laughs> chocolate and espresso butter? I've never heard of it before. Yes, so the chocolate is in the cake and then the espresso butter is oh, a kind see. of a separate on the to spread over the top. But I've seen this in a few cafes recently on the kind of brunch menu, a piece of toasted banana bread with um, kind of flavoured butter. And I'm quite for it. I think that's quite a nice little indulgent little breakfast snack. Just take a cake, relabel it as toasted <laughs> toasted banana bread and, you know, it's a breakfast. So you could do this and you're very kind of on brand. It's like you live in shortage. Exactly. <laughs> it's a very kind of hipster way to take your banana bread and make it extra fancy. But I can't lie, when you take banana bread, especially when it's got chocolate in it, and then you toast it so it all melts into little pockets and then you spread it with some kind of flavoured butter, either maple butter or this is espresso butter. It is quite a magical combination. I can hear the cries up in another country now. Darling, we're out of espresso butter. The espresso... <laughs> I went to the cupboard. It's gone. <laughs> um, 
And, I mean, do you... Presumably you make the espresso butter in quite small batches. You don't end up with a big bar of espresso butter. Yes, it's only a small amount, but there's nothing stopping you if you, if you want an endless supply of espresso <laughs> butter in your fridge. Just yeah. double, you, triple it. <laughs> you could use nothing else. <laughs> yeah, it actually, it would save you time in the morning, wouldn't it, with your toast? You wouldn't need coffee. You just toast with espresso butter. You're out of there. Yeah, yeah all, of, all in one. <laughs> espresso butter, marmalade. <laughs> Yeah, one-stop shopping. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and quickly, before we go to music, banana loaf, is it is it a, a hard thing to bake? I know why you think everything's simple to bake, but, you know, <laughs> but seriously, how, how, how easy or hard is it? No, this is a very, a very easy on the scale. It's a, I would put it at a two or a three in, in ease. Uh, OK, so uh, let's start with the, the loaf, Martha. Where do we begin? So we're taking... A loaf tin, you want to line it with like one long strip so it creates almost like two little handles that you can lift out the cake at the end of the recipe, which makes it nice and simple. And preheat your oven nice and hot to 220. Then we're taking our ripe bananas. And this is one of those recipes where, yes, you want those bananas that look a little bit like they've been sat in your fruit bowl a little too long because they'll be nice and soft and easy to mash. So take three bananas, stick them into a bowl, give them a good mash, and then we're adding oil and sugar. So this is actually a vegan cake recipe. The espresso butter that gets slathered over it is not vegan, but the cake itself is. So very suitable for all. We're mixing together. So the oil, the sugar, and the bananas have all been mixed together. And then we are adding all of the rest of the cake ingredients. So we've got some ground cinnamon, a bit of ginger for a little bit of spice, plain flour, lots of baking powder. So you've got four teaspoons of baking powder to make sure that your cake gets a rise because anything with banana in it can become a little heavy. Then we are adding in some raisins or sultanas or any other dried fruit that you fancy, some chopped nuts. I've gone with chopped Brazil nuts in this cake, but you could use walnuts or anything that of that kind of consistency. And then the chocolate. So... You need 50 to 100 grams of chopped chocolate. Now, Ellie suggests using Easter eggs because they come in those, once they've been broken up, they kind of make those little shards, which are quite good in a cake because you get little kind of random pockets. But you can chop up a regular bar of chocolate if, like me, your Easter eggs are long gone. (laughs) (laughs) All gets mixed together. What what Easter eggs? Yeah, what Easter (laughs) eggs? Easter was two weeks ago. I don't think I've got any left. (laughs) But no, so that all gets kind of poured into your loaf tin and that goes into the oven 20 minutes at this hot temperature. Then it gets turned down, covered with a little bit of foil so it doesn't get too toasted on the top and baked for a further 20 minutes. Then it's really good warm when it comes out of the oven, but you want to mix up this espresso butter, which is just icing sugar, butter and a little bit of kind of powdered espresso, instant espresso, so you can get it really strong. Then you mix that all together and then toast a little slice of the banana bread the next day, spread over that butter... It's a, it's a real thing of beauty, I think. And does the instant espresso, does that kind of dissolve in the butter or does it stay a bit gritty? So, actually, sorry, I did miss a tiny bit where you dissolve <laughs> the espresso in water. So you take your espresso powder, dissolve it in a tiny little bit of water to make a paste. Then it goes in the butter with the icing sugar. So it should kind of blend really nicely and create this kind of kind of brown butter. We don't want gritty. We don't no. want gritty butter. No. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend using kind of a, the non-instant coffee in this because then you will be getting bits of grit. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. But this would be a lovely breakfast, wouldn't it? That would, yes, it would be, people would think, would think you were very smart if you produced this breakfast time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And it's really good warm straight out of the oven on its own. And then you can have it the next couple of days because it keeps its moisture and we're toasting it and spreading it with butter. So... It's a good one to keep for the keep you going all week. <laughs>
Okay. If you'd like to see that recipe, you could go to uh, the Waitrose website, waitrose.com slash showchef for the Graham Norton Waitrose hub. You'll find this recipe for the banana loaf and indeed all the recipes prepared by Martha. You could also check out the visuals for the recipe uh, on our socials at Virgin Radio UK. Uh, thank you so much, Martha. Have a lovely week. I'll see you next weekend. Thank you. You too. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Uh, now, Bleak Expectations is a hugely successful and award-winning BBC Radio 4 comedy. It is now transferring to London's West End. Uh, it's running from the 3rd of May right through to the 3rd of September. Not in it for all of that time, but in it for a week is my guest today, Sally Phillips. Hello, Sally. One week only. Yeah, one week only. How are you? I'm Thanks really well. I'm very well. Uh, do you know what? Uh, this is such a clever idea. You you get to be in a West End show, but Isn't you it enjoy great? it for yeah. You enjoy it and for as can. long as you would enjoy it for. <laughs> yes, exactly. I haven't done much theatre uh, since I had kids. It just is not compatible with putting your kids to bed and stuff. So, uh, but I intend to do some in the future. So this is like a slowly dipping my toe back in the water. And I completely love the show. Have you heard it? I mean, it's it's yeah, no, it's funny. Re- I mean. So if people haven't heard it, how do you describe Bleak Expectations to people? It's a, a kind of um, a m- mashup of all of Dickens' works uh, and made really, really funny. So it's people talking like Dickens. But, uh, you know, so people have uh, names like Gently Bele- Benevolent and um, I can't remember, it's too early in the morning, M- Ripely Sweeting and that kind of thing. And uh, and it's just a sort of romp, really. It's just funny. This it's a joke. It's basically a joke every four seconds. And um, who do you play? I'm playing. Oh, so on the radio, Tom Allen played Pip, and um, it was told through the, by the voice of older Pip, looking back on his life, him telling stories of his adventures, and that's who I am. And so I get to sit on stage with a massive book. Spot the other brilliant cheat there, um, with my lines in. And I, I hope, I mean, I haven't been to a, I haven't been to a rehearsal yet. I really hope I'm not supposed to learn it. There's quite a lot of them. And I tell the story and then some brilliant actors come on and act stuff out and do the farce. But it's more I than mean, just that is... in one place. Apparently my chair moves and things. Oh, oh, no. So you don't even have to learn the blocking. Your chair just moves by itself and you I, read from I a book. So. Well, this, this is what I'm hoping. I, to be honest, I don't know yet. I mean, let's wait and see. Imagine my shock horror. It's only because they haven't scheduled in much rehearsals. I'm thinking, well, I mean, you know, if, if if I was supposed to learn it, then presumably we'd be rehearsing it more than once. But yeah, so you're I mean, doing it. Yes. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, no, you're going. To, you do it from the 16th to 21st of May. Uh, who else yeah. is taking uh, this role? Or, or are you all, or all the guests, are all the star guest stars playing the same role? If you know what I mean, they're all, all playing, playing the narrator. Same role. Yeah. So the the proper play is being done by proper actors, and then us floozies come in for a week each. So you could catch Nicola Walker or Stephen Fry. I'm surprised you're not doing it. Dermot O'Leary, um, Mark Gatiss, I think is doing one. I mean, I I, I haven't got the full list in front of me. I, maybe I should have. Uh... I do. But, I don't yeah. see Mark Gatiss on it, but he may. He may well. He may well be doing it. <laughs> that kind <laughs> Sue of Sue Perkins is doing it. Super. Yeah, Sue Perkins is doing it just after you. Julian Clary, Lee yeah. Max, Stephen Mangan, Joe Brand. I mean, oh, Tom Allen is reprising the role. Thank, uh, thank he, God he's you're going to do it in July. That's all I can yeah, say. No, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm all over it. I'm all over it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
exactly. So yeah, it'd be it'd be loads of loads of fun, I think. And, um, and big I, expectations on the radio. It's not it's not improvised in any way. It is properly written. No, it's scripted by Mark Evans. I mean, it's really really funny. Have you heard it? There's only yeah, only, no, I have. There's only one episode uh, left on iPlayer at the moment, but it is really if you have a listen to it. I mean, it is really really funny. Um, and not everything on Radio Four is really really funny. <laughs> um, I've, I've certainly been in quite a lot of things that are not really really funny on Radio Four, but this is genuinely a really 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 funny Radio Four show. And, be, and I think there's something about doing a radio sh show in front of a live audience. It, it's sort of um, it's sort of stage. It's sort of theatrical anyway, if you know what I mean. I mean, you're talking to the audience, you're making them laugh with your face and it's not just not just the words and so I think um we we did something called Claire in the Community for years which was a radio a radio comedy and there were plans to take that into the West End and I can see how it you know how it how it could have, we didn't do it in the end but I can see how it could have worked so I think I think this is going to be really really fun just uh an hour and a half or two hours of farce of big belly laughs people being idiots you know on purpose I'm <laughs> and Timothy, you talk about being in things on Radio 4 that weren't funny. Because you kind of, you you know, we all kind of met you through Smack the Pagoni, which you kind of co-created and you did you writing met on. me. You met me in Edinburgh and we shared a dressing room. I know, many years ago. Like many a thousand years ago. Years ago. A thousand yeah. years ago. We were always hung over. The shows were in the afternoon. I was doing Ra Ra Rasputin, <laughs> a comedy biography of Rasputin the Monk with the words and lyrics of O.N.M. And you were doing... Uh, what was it? Oh, some was rubbish. It wasn't. Was it my hostess trolley? Was it the hostess, hostess trolley? trolley. Yes, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We had to oh. lie and say I, I, my hostess trolley had been stolen. Actually, I'd never bothered to get one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but being in something like saying yes to things that you haven't created was that difficult after Smack the Pony, where you were kind of, you know, you were kind of in the driving seat. Um, that's a good question. Uh, no, I think I had this idea, you know, I, I wanted to do films and so I wanted not to have created those. So I had my big disappointment after Smack the Pony was I got cast in, um, it was called The Man from La Mancha, which was Terry Gilliam's Don Quixote, which finally he made a couple of years ago. But I was cast as a Spanish hooker who got to shag Johnny Depp. And I was so packed for that. I had my suitcase oh. waiting by the front door. And then I think it was Jean Reno kept having bowel issues, which turned out, I think, just to be hernias. But they thought it was colon cancer. And the whole thing was folded. And the insurers came in like, you know, locusts and swept the place clean. But I, yeah, I was definitely planning to be a massive movie star. Um, uh, yes, but I mean, now I realise how lucky I was um, having all that creative freedom. It doesn't doesn't come again easily, that. Uh, Sally, I've had a question from uh, um, uh, somebody called Stuart Leeds, who's really looking forward to seeing Big Expectations. Uh, how will each of the incredible guest performers stamp their mark on the show? What will, Sa what will Sally be doing that will stand out from the rest? Yes, Sally, what will you be doing to stand out from the rest? Well, you know what? That's the question that's keeping me up at night. I'm also playing an old man. <laughs> I'm playing an old man, but I am playing an old man in a time when they didn't think women were proper human beings. So I'm mean, going to guess the implication is is Pip Bin has had a gender reassignment surgery later on. 
I, I don't really know. I mean, what do you think? I mean, should I wear a big moustache? I don't know if I should. This is what I'm wondering about at night. Should I do a bloke? I mean, when I first Are you going? But I was playing a lot of blokes and I, I didn't like that much. I remember having a sort of mini tantrum going, I want to wear a skirt. And then going, but if you wear a skirt, you'll be different. And me going, I am different, but I am different from you. <laughs> so it's sort of bringing all of that up. Um, the, I spoke to the director and she said, no, just sort of do it as your as yourself. So, um, okay. yeah, I mean, I, I guess everyone's got their own timing and their own rhythm. I mean, I could do some special noises. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do some special hand action. I don't. I don't. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to put some serious thought into that before the third of May, aren't I? I mean, well, and the, here's the thing. I thought because you talked about playing uh, the, you know, playing a lot of men, and I thought that was just yeah. something you said in an interview. Why were you playing men at Oxford? I, I get in in school. In school, you know, often people have to play, you know, different yeah. parts. But in university, there are men and women. You don't, you don't have yeah. to play men. I think it's because people were trying to write sketches that looked like sketches that were on the telly, and there weren't any women on the telly. And so in in comedy, people, I mean, people didn't think women were funny at all. Now leave that where it is, Graham. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, they, they didn't. It's so awful. You know, Eddie Izzard just won best funniest uh, female comedian, which sent us all a bit crazy. But um, yes, uh, yeah, people just didn't think women were funny. And so to be funny, yeah, you had to be a bloke. So the lines would be written for, I was playing Billy Sergeant Goot Dink, the monster i was sort of gender neutral or male um so yeah. and then how did you how did you find each other to create smack the pony was it were you just like three frustrated frustrated women kind of going no come on we can do no, this is, come on everybody no, it has started to change by then and i can't claim any credit for it caroline leddy um i don't know if you know her but completely brilliant yeah. uh completely brilliant comedy producer she had been in a trio called the Millies with Joanna Scanlon and Joe Unwin, Chris Morris's wife, who's now a top literary agent. And they had been very, very good, but just found all the doors shut. And then the Spice Girls arrived and Caroline went, oh, let's give it another crack. And by this stage, she was one of the commissioners at Channel, or in-house producers at Channel 4. And so she just put us together. And um, we had, you know, eight terrified months of improvising and developing it during which I managed to, I got Dune on board. So I hero worship Dune and Rebecca Front, who is slightly older than me, but who'd been doing Armando Iannucci's stuff. And I remember stopping Dune in a corridor and talk back on Percy Street and going, you have to come and help us. This is going to be disastrous. No woman will ever be allowed to be funny again, uh, allowed to be on telly again. And she came and did it. We were all completely terrified. And, and I, you know, at the time, uh, it was, I think it was more more popular abroad than it was here among the you know, critics and stuff. We were always nominated for BAFTAs and things, but we never won them. But abroad would win everything. And I still have a really neat line of work in Scandinavia because it was really big in Scandinavia. And I think that was partly because there were more women in the workplace. So it didn't look weird that it would be an all-female A&E. Yeah. And um, isn't it interesting too, when you look back and you realise at the end of the 90s, how different things were, that like a new show could have that sort of impact because you didn't have multiple channels. There really were just, I mean, Channel 5 was, was knocking around, but basically it was, if a, if a new show came on Channel 4, people paid attention, whereas it's so much harder now. Yeah, we were in that lucky slot uh, after Friends. 
So you picked up a massive audience if you were on After Friends because everyone used to watch Friends. I mean, diff- it, I, we sound like two of the oldest people Old in the people. world now talking. But... <laughs> yeah, but you know, I remember when I first started doing a radio show on Radio 4, which was not funny, and there being all these senior British character actors sitting upstairs, dribbling, falling asleep with Garibaldi half in and out of their mouth. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm never going to be like that. They were like, oh, Hattie was brilliant, wasn't she? Remember Hattie's dog? I remember Hattie's dog. I do remember Hattie's dog. Um <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, God, this is awful. And that's us now. (laughs) Speak for yourself. Speak for yourself, Sally Phillips. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lovely, lovely, lovely to talk to you, Sally. Uh, Good luck in bleak expectations. Uh, The show runs from the 3rd of May to the 3rd of September. If you want to see Sally in it, though, you've got to go between the 16th to the 21st of May. She will be sitting and reading, but it'll be very good. Um, good luck with it, Sally. Take care now. Bye. Yes, we are in the middle of another round of Word Up. Uh, this is your chance to win a Graham Norton Joe's gift box, including reusable drinks cup, Waitrose brew champagne, salted caramel truffles, balsamic vinegar medina, lots of great things in there. Uh, let's find out who's first off the line. It's Helen. Hi there, Graham. Are you Helen? I am. Oh, good. <laughs> and uh, where, where, where are you, Helen? I'm in Cheltenham. Okay, very nice. And what have you got yeah. planned for your Sunday in Cheltenham? Um, I'm just getting ready to go back to work tomorrow. I've been off for a week. So just Ooh, yes. doing a bit what, of gardening. What, what do you yeah. do? I'm a, a carer in the community. Okay, so you've had a nice week off, uh, have, enjoyed yeah. the garden, but uh, tomorrow yeah. uh, back to yeah, back to back work, to work. Back, back to reality. Yeah. Well, let's see Absolutely. if we can send you on. Let's send you on your way with a fabulous uh, Waitrose goodie box. Uh, we're going to play you. this clip. Okay, it's Lenny Henry. Uh, he's going to be with Chris on the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Cinch on Tuesday. But this was an old interview with me. Uh, what is the missing word? Let's play it. I did this thing, and what was wonderful was my family, my cousins, my brothers and sisters gave me a round of And it was the first time that acknowledged that I was this other person. All right, Helen. Okay. What, what uh, do you think pl- that the missing word is? Applause. You think it's applause? Let's listen to the clip and see if you're right. I did this thing, and what was wonderful was my family, my cousins, my brothers and sisters gave me a round of applause, and it was the first time that acknowledged that I was this other person. Oh. <laughs> a round of applause for Helen in Cheltenham! Yay! Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, hopefully that's going to make your uh, your back-to-work day tomorrow a bit better, knowing that there's some oh, champagne definitely. and truffles and all things on their way. Anyone you'd like to say lovely. hello to on the radio while you're here, Helen? Lovely. My husband, Tim, who's playing football at the moment, my daughter, Chloe, Gaz, Zach, Jude, uh, my son, Ollie, and his girlfriend, Laura, who are expecting a baby any day now. So very exciting. Oh. So champagne will come in handy to um, celebrate. Yeah, you can wet the baby's head with that. Very good. Absolutely. <laughs> and lovely. Uh, Helen, a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so Thank much you, for Graham. getting involved in Word Thank Up. You. And wasn't it worth it? Yeah. It a phone indeed. call and now look. Yeah, there Thank you go. You yeah. All right. Hope tomorrow's not too much of a shock to the system. Take care now. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. And hey... 
Have you clicked that follow button on all of our socials? We're also on TikTok. I know. Just look up Virgin Radio UK on all platforms to see everything from gorgeous dishes to Graham's guides. For now, speak to you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. 